Amen. It's such a joy to sing about our privilege to both boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and to abide in Him and to rest in His love and His grace that He shows to us on a moment-by-moment basis. And boy, do we need it because we are needy people, as our brother Rob reminded us today. Um, this morning, it's, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, our special guest and our speaker this morning, Michael Spencer. Uh, Mike served as a pastor for 23 years, and, and I just love that so much um, about him love his his heart and his passion for the body of Christ. I met uh, Mike through our Micah Clark. Pretty much all the best people I know I met through Micah Clark. So if you want to, and Micah's not even here today, but tell him I said really nice things about him. But uh, Micah's wonderful. Michael Spencer, such a blessing. He, he served with uh, a Life Training Institute for eight years, traveling and speaking with them. And then several years ago, God put it on his heart uh, to found Project Life Voice. It is a gospel-driven human rights organization that works to equip and to inspire pro-life ambassadors who will represent Jesus Christ well, who will faithfully articulate and share the truth of, of God's Word. Mike is also the author of this book, and he did not ask me to talk about the book or to plug the book. But I'm going to do it anyway. I've started reading it and it is tremendous. Not only will you benefit from the truth that's communicated in it, but Mike shares his own story of how God worked in his life to bring him to where he is um, today. So you can get this on Amazon. Again, it's humanly speaking, the evil of abortion, the silence of the church and the grace of God. So this will be a wonderful resource to add to your um, library. So we are so th- so Mike, Would you come and let's welcome Mike as he comes to share God's word with us. Thanks, brother. It is so nice to be back with you. Um, I think we were talking earlier, and I think it's been five years. I think we said four, and then I was talking to one of the gals here who said it was five years ago. But um, it's wonderful to be back, uh, to be with you. Um, to be with like-minded brothers and sisters and to be able to worship with you um, this morning. So I'm grateful for this opportunity and I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, address you and to speak with you about the sacredness of human life and the threat that abortion is um, to God's precious image bearers and to their mothers. I am very thankful for Pastor Chris and Pastor Stephen and the rest of your eldership here um, I really believe that where a church stands um, on the subject of abortion or maybe more appropriately on the subject of the sacredness of human life says an awful lot about where they stand on a whole host of other things. It says a lot about their love for God, his word, and for, their, and for his people. So thank you, um, Pastor Chris, for this opportunity. Well, you know that our nation is bitterly, bitterly divided over the subject of abortion. And sadly, so are many churches. Um, There's a great deal of confusion today in the body of Christ with um, respect to the nature and the value of the human embryo and with respect to the church's duty in an abortion-infatuated culture like ours. This confusion, coupled with the deeply personal and oftentimes painful nature of this subject, has caused most churches 
to self-censor. It's caused most churches to um, uh, choose silence over faithfulness when it comes to speaking out on what I believe is the defining moral issue of our day, and that being, of course, legalized abortion. I believe that this is um, our great scandal as a church in America. Uh, After all, what is a watching world to think of our gospel when they hear of us or hear us speaking adoringly of Christ, the lover and the defender of children, when so much of the church will not speak up for the children that he loves and defends. I think it, it compromises our gospel witness. So I'm, I'm so grateful again to be in a church that does not shrink back, that does not hold back on giving voice to the voiceless. Renowned author and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel wrote this, Quote, silence always helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. He's right. And in fact, each generation has the astonishing ability to, re- to be repulsed um, by the moral crimes of those who came before them, while in many cases repeating many of those same offenses. We look back now with greater moral clarity at slavery and at segregation in our own land, and we scorn the memory of those whose apathy and whose love for personal comfort constricted their uh, circle of moral responsibility so tightly as to exclude their black brothers and sisters. Yet scores of shepherds today um, and of professing Christians give no thought today, in many cases, to excluding the preborn from their circles of moral responsibility. Comfortably removed by 160 years from slavery and by 60 years from segregation, it is easy to romanticize how we would have responded to our black brothers and sisters had we been alive or had we been old enough to march with them, for instance, uh, in March of 1965 on the Edmund, Edmund Pettus Bridge. I'm sure many of you have wondered that. I've wondered that myself. Would I have locked arms with my black brothers and sisters in 1965 had I not been three years old. Um, But would I have done that? Would I have taken up their burden and suffered along with them? It's very easy to sort of romanticize that and say, oh, I would have done that um, safely from the comfort of 2023 when I don't have to march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge with them. It's very easy to, to assume the best of ourselves, and perhaps that would be true of you. But remember, that day was called Bloody Sunday for a reason. At the... um, Hands of Alabama state troopers, they were met with tear gas, nightsticks, and fire hoses. And um, none of us can know for sure what we would have done in March of 1965. But here's what we can know. If we will not speak up for and sacrifice for Christ's precious little ones, our fellow image bearers who are in the crosshairs of choice, legalized abortion, if we will not do that in 2023, when the cost remains, at least for now, relatively low, We can be absolutely certain we would not have stood with our black brothers and sisters in 1965 when the cost was exceedingly high. This really is our civil rights movement. I know it doesn't feel that way. We don't have a sympathetic media fawning all over us. We don't have Angelina Jolie and Bono jumping on our bandwagon with their celebrity status. It doesn't doesn't feel like a civil rights movement, but this really is our Goliath, I am convinced. And how we respond to the preborn and to their mothers and to those who who have had abortions, I think reveals a great deal about our love for Christ and our love for our fellow man. 
What I hope to do here this morning for you is to spur you on even further um, in love and good deeds on behalf of the preborn and on behalf of their mothers. And I want to do that by responding to six common misconceptions or falsehoods that have contributed to so much of the silence, that have paralyzed so many pulpits in our land today. Uh, I do want to say this, I, two things here on, on, on that. One of the things I'm doing is I'm, and, and take this as a compliment, um, I'm operating from an assumption this morning, and I think it's a fairly safe one here, and the assumption is that the vast majority of you, if not all of you, accept the settled science of human embryology that says that life begins at fertilization, and that you also accept the clear teaching of Scripture, which, will, which I will touch on here briefly, the clear teaching of Scripture where, whereby we see that the Old and New Testament writers treat the preborn child as a whole valuable person. Now, that's the assumption that I'm operating on this morning, okay? Now, the other thing I want to say is this by way of introduction here, is that I do realize that in a church this size, um, that this is a uh, perhaps a deeply personal and a very sensitive subject for many of you. Um, perhaps you have been responsible for an abortion decision um, or you've participated in some way. And some of what I am going to share with you may be difficult um, for you to hear today. I trust that you understand I have to speak directly and biblically and boldly to this subject. But I want you to know that I also intend to speak redemptively to this subject. In fact, if you've been impacted by an abortion decision in your past, I am going to speak very directly and very redemptively to you at the end of my message. So I would just ask you to hang with me as we um, go through some, as we wade through some difficult waters here. Let me share with you, again, six common misconceptions or falsehoods. Here's the first one. The first one is that we hear oftentimes, even from many within the church, that the Bible is silent on the subject of abortion. And of course, this has become the reason for many shepherds to become silent themselves. Now, if you are a fan of the TV show The View, you should repent. Um, But if you've ever seen the show, um, about every other episode, and I don't know this, I don't watch it, but Pastor Chris tells me all about it. Um, But if you've ever seen the show The View, about every other episode, they're talking about abortion. And um, several years ago, uh, on one of these episodes where they were talking about abortion, Whoopi Goldberg, the great sage of our culture today, said this. She said, there's nothing in the book, referring to the Bible now, she said, there's nothing in the book that says anything about abortion. Let's, be, let's make sure of that. The Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments. There's only ten. Now, uh, first of all, Whoopi should stick with entertainment and not theology. All right? It is true that the Bible nowhere mentions abortion, not in the Old or in the, two, in, in the New Testament. But Whoopi is operating from a faulty assumption. And the assumption is what the Bible does not expressly condemn, it therefore condones. But think how ridiculous that is. There are many things that the Bible doesn't expressly condemn that we know God, uh, that we know God condemns. For instance, nowhere does your Bible in any translation even if you have the message translation, nowhere does your Bible uh, expressly condemn torturing puppies. But we know God condemns that because he's called us to steward that which he's created. So by inference, we know that that is wrong. Keep it, think of it this way. Abortion is simply one method of murdering innocent human beings. And sadly, tragically, since Cain killed Abel, mankind has become quite innovative in his ability to devise methods, to invent methods, to um, murder his neighbor. We can do this with knives, guns, ropes, poisons, 
shovels, and we can do that by the method that we call abortion. Now, the Bible clearly and frequently condemns the unjust shedding of innocent human blood. And Whoopi is right. There are only ten commandments. But what she seems not to know is that the sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. We see this same principle or the same commandment, the same prohibition um, throughout the Old and New Testament. Let me just give you one more example. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Therefore, we do not need a Bible verse expressly condemning this particular method of murder that we call abortion any more than we need a Bible verse that would expressly condemn beating your neighbor to death with a baseball bat. We do not need that. This is ridiculous, okay? Nor do we need a Bible verse expressly telling us which classes of human beings we cannot murder. So, for instance, nowhere does the Bible say, thou shalt not murder Hispanics or Asians or people born in February. We don't need that. So we don't need a Bible verse that says, don't, don't murder certain small people who are located in certain other people. We do not need that. We simply know, need to know that the Bible frequently, clearly um, condemns the unjust shedding of hum, innocent human blood. And I should add that the Bible writers consistently view the preborn child as a whole valuable person. This is very clear, again, in the Old and in the New Testament. Let me give you just a few examples. David, Job, Jeremiah, and Samson all saw themselves as a continuum from conception through adulthood. In other words, when they would refer to themselves in utero, their earlier lives in utero, they did it as if they were in utero, as if it was them there, not something that later became them, okay? A couple of quick examples. David writes this, Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David is clearly identifying himself as an embryo, just as you might say, well, I was a freshman in high school at one point, or a toddler. That's what David's doing. Job does the same thing. In Job chapter 31, Verses 15 and 16, speaking of slaves, he says, Did not he, God, who made me in the womb, make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? So Job, again, sees himself as a continuum through um, the moment of conception right through his adult life. Now, while these men could not possibly have known what you and I know about prenatal human development, they did, they did not merely believe that they came from an embryo. They believed they were an embryo. Again, just as they were once a toddler, an infant, and so forth, right? Now, in the New Testament, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and you can turn there if you want. I'm just going to spend a minute there, but you might want to see this. Luke chapter 1, there's a fascinating account here for us where we have two pregnant women. One is Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, who Greg Kokel, pro-life author and speaker, humorous, humorously refers to as John the Fetus at this stage of his development. He's about, according to the passage, he's about six months of gestation. So he weighs about three, maybe three and a half pounds. Mary is also pregnant with Jesus, who's only days or weeks old in her womb. He weighs only ounces or grams. And there's this remarkable story here where Mary has traveled to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Judea to visit. And this is what we read. This is Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, starting in verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just stop there for a minute. The word baby that we, we translate into the English word baby is the Greek word brephos. Hang on to that for a minute because we're going to go somewhere with that. 
Continues on, verse 42. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, that's that Greek word again, brephos, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, if we stopped there, I would find this fascinating. That God, who is the ultimate communicator, chose the same Greek word to refer to babies in and out of the womb. Now, again, if we stop there, you might think, well, that's just the word used for babies in the womb. But turn to the next page in Luke chapter 2. Now Jesus has been born. He's no longer in Mary's womb. He's out of the womb. Same word. This is verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby, Brephos, wrapped and lying in a manger. Wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, I don't think this is compelling at all to somebody who has no regard for God's word. But that ought to be very compelling to us in the body of Christ that God has chosen the same Greek word to refer to babies on both sides of the birth canal. I think it's fascinating and I think it's quite compelling. The Old and New Testament verses that are put in place to protect human dignity and human worth, in other words, to prevent you from being murdered, are there to prevent you from being murdered. They're there to protect you at every stage of your development. So, so that's, that includes in the womb as well. Let me move to the second falsehood or misconception. And that is that we hear that abortion is a political issue and therefore it's off limits for the church. It's off limits for the pulpit. Now, perhaps no argument has done more to paralyze our response to innocent children and their mothers than this one. Now, let me be clear. It is absolutely true that abortion is a political issue. I mean, who can deny it? In fact, I would argue it's the political issue in our culture today. It's the political issue. But it is much more accurately described or defined as a moral spiritual issue that has been politicized. And when you think about it, every moral issue is eventually politicized. War, slavery, eight years ago, the redefining of marriage. Did that render it off limits for the pulpit? Should your pastors be licking their fingers and sticking it in the wind to see which way the political fashions of wind are blowing to determine whether or not they speak on something? Well, of course not. Are they only to speak to state-approved subjects? Were pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Charles Finney, and Vernon Johns who railed against the persecution of Jews, against slavery, and against Jim Jim Crow laws, were they guilty of sticking their noses where they didn't belong? I hardly think so. When ordered by the Sanhedrin, To stop preaching Christ. Peter and John replied in Acts chapter 4, Judge for yourselves whether or not it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than men. I'm sorry, to obey you rather than God. Forgive me. Clearly, just because a moral issue is hijacked by politicians, becomes politicized, cannot render it off limits for the pulpit. The commands to speak up for those who have no voice, to rescue those being led away to death, to expose the fruitless deeds of darkness cannot be restrained by political powers. Now, to be clear, pastors should protect their churches from evolving into political machines. Placing our hope in politicians or in temporary political solutions rather than in God is idolatry. But it doesn't follow from that that the political realm should be roped off from our influence. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Paul wrote, all things have been put under his feet. 
Christ has a rightful claim on every aspect of our lives. He's Lord of our marriages. He's Lord of our singleness. He's Lord of our parenting, our careers, our money, and our sexuality. He is Lord of everything. That means he is Lord of our politics, no less. Abraham Kuyper said it this way, There is not one square inch of the entire domain of existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not point to it and say, That is mine. That means that when I walk into the voting booth, when you walk into the voting booth, we are not free as followers of Christ to vote for our pet interest. We are obligated to do what we can in our limited thinking, in our finite thinking, but by the power of God's Spirit and through prayer, to weigh things out and to ask ourselves, who will best mitigate evil? Which candidate, which party will best mitigate evil? Which party will best protect the weakest and most vulnerable among us? Because after all, that's the role of the government. That's the primary foundational role of the government, where the state is to protect the weak from the strong. We teach pastors, teach their congregations how to behave sexually, how to treat their spouses, how to raise their children, how to manage their money. Shouldn't we be teaching our congregations how to vote? Now, I'm not suggesting, again, that we be telling our congregations, vote for this guy, don't vote for that guy, and so forth. But we ought to be teaching them that certain moral issues, like the the wanton slaughter of little boys and girls, our fellow image bearers, rises to the top when we go into the voting booth. No, we're not single issue. As, as Hopefully, as, as mature Christians, we care deeply about many issues, but we recognize, again, that certain moral issues do rise to the top. That where a candidate stands on on the subject of killing innocent children, depriving them of their most fundamental right, the right to continue living, will tell me about where he or she stands on a whole host of other issues. By the way, we're not forcing our morality on others as we so often are accused by our, our opponents when we go into the voting booth and vote our convictions. We are not forcing our morality or our religion on anyone. Rather, it is the abortion industry that is forcing its lethal will on helpless children. We're simply using our gospel influence uh, in the political realm to stop the illicit use of force. That's all we're doing. So don't be intimidated by that kind of thing. Let me move to the third falsehood or misconception. And that is that abortion is just another issue. That there are more important issues for the church. Now, when people say this, especially when professing Christians say this, they are revealing either great ignorance over what abortion does to little girls and boys and to their mothers and fathers, or they are revealing great callousness. We have had 63 million children aborted since 1973, and that body count is continuing to rise. One in four women in the United States will have had at least one abortion by the time they are 45 years of age. Now, if that sounds like an inflammatory statistic, that comes from the Alan Guttmacher Institute. You might think, well, they're biased. They're trying to make it normalized. Fine. But that's the same, st- st- excuse me, that's the same statistic that National Right to Life is using and a whole lot of other right to life organizations. I mean, think about it. If 63 million children have died, those mothers and those fathers are somewhere, Right? In most of our churches, we have children missing from our Christmas dramas in December. Little boys and girls that ought to be on the the platform dressed as angels and wise men, but they're not there because seven and eight years earlier, they were aborted, and in many cases, with the silent approval of their shepherds. They were in churches, their parents were in churches that would not speak out on this issue. Suppose toddlers were being legally killed in the United States. 
And suppose that we had a body count so far in the last 50 years of of 63 million dead toddlers. Would anybody think that this is just another issue for the church? Abortion is the intentional and unjust killing of innocent human beings at their most vulnerable stage of development in the most barbaric manner imaginable. Abortion dismembers, decapitates, disembowels little boys and girls in their mother's wombs. It's easy to dismiss abortion as just another issue when you never actually have to see abortion. I held abortion in my hands in 1992. I was pastoring a church in Fort Wayne, which is, by the way, that's when I met Micah. He wasn't living in Fort Wayne, but that's when I met Micah Clark. I was pastoring a church there, and through my involvement in the pro-life community, I met a young man named Tim. And Tim had actually lifted a little baby girl from a dumpster. She had been aborted. She was dead. Had lifted her from a dumpster behind an abortion clinic in my hometown in Detroit. He lifted her from that dumpster with the intention of giving her a proper burial, which he did. But in the meantime, my wife, Barb, and I, along with about eight or ten others in a small Bible study, held that lifeless little girl on a cloth diaper. She had been aborted by a saline solution abortion, which means her body was still perfectly intact, although her skin was terribly discolored because she had been burned from her mother's womb. And I hear all of the rhetoric like you do from the other side. My body, my choice. Don't like abortion. Don't have one. Every child, a wanted child. But when you hold in your hands a precious, beautiful, but lifeless little girl, the product of choice, all of a sudden, all of that rhetoric, all of that sloganeering disintegrates under the weight of a lifeless child. And how I have wished I could take that little one to high school and university campuses with me and hold her out to my opponents and say, you tell me that this is reproductive justice. You tell me that this is women's rights. This is demonic, is what it is. And abortion is not just another issue. Now, it's interesting that we can see every vile, graphic thing under the sun today. Not that we should, but that we can. But for some reason, we're told there's never an appropriate time or place to see what abortion does to children. The media won't show it because they're in bed with Planned Parenthood. Hollywood won't show it because they're in bed with Planned Parenthood. The overwhelming majority of churches would never show it because they are unwittingly in bed with Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood loves it because they get to continue to ply their grisly trade and the body count continues to rise and their dollars continue to go up and they get to do that under the cover of darkness. But we've got clear, a clear commandment in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, where Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose them. I'm just curious, how many of you saw the movie Sound of Freedom in recent months here? A lot of you, okay. Powerful film, wasn't it? Exposing the evils of sex trafficking. I, I think the last time my wife and I walked out of a theater that stunned was when we saw The Passion of the Christ. It was a powerful film. And I thank God for Christians who are exposing that evil. But for some reason, there's never an appropriate time or place to see what abortion does to children. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you a one-minute video. You will not see an abortion being performed, but you're going to see the after effects of abortion in all three trimesters. I want to say a couple things about this. First of all, you, um, you can easily opt out of this portion of my message by simply averting your gaze or closing your eyes. There's no audio narration except a musical track. So if you choose not to watch, you'll be able, you'll, you know, you'll be able to exempt yourself from this point. That said, I want to plead with you. If you've never seen what abortion does to little boys and girls, I want to plead with you to watch this. 
moms and dads, if you've got little ones in the sanctuary, you might want to close their eyes or maybe step out for just a minute. If you, I would encourage that. Um, and then I want to say one more thing here. And that is that I'm not showing this this morning to convince you to be pro-life. I'm assuming in this church you're already convinced. I'm showing it to you because I think we need to bring our emotions into alignment with our Heavenly Father's emotions over this issue. And I think you have a right to see what abortion does to children. Um, If you have been impacted by an abortion decision, I'm going to speak more directly to you toward the end of my message. But I do want to say this very quickly. There is no sin including the sin of abortion, that is so bad or evil, but that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is not greater still. So I hope you understand my heart here. I am sharing this with you this morning, not to manipulate, but to educate. So with no further ado, we're going to go ahead and show this at this time. I know that's tough to see. And I'm sure some of you are seeing that this morning for the first time. That is what Planned Parenthood does not want you to see. It's very easy, isn't it, for them to portray you and I as waging a war on women and stealing reproductive rights when they never have to see or we never get to see what they are doing. We're not waging a war on anyone. The only war that's being waged is what you just saw with your own eyes if you watched that video. Abortion isn't just another issue any more than slavery was just another issue in 1860. This is the defining moral issue of our day. It's not the only important issue, but it is the defining moral issue. And responding to this evil is a gospel issue. It's not the gospel, but it is a gospel issue in the sense that it is a loving your neighbor as yourself issue. The failure to respond with compassion and conviction in in so many churches across our land today, in fact, the vast majority of them, is amputating our spirit and disfiguring the soul of the church in America. It is damaging our gospel witness. Abortion is an attack on God's precious image bearers. And we are our brother's keeper. Whether that brother has been beaten and abandoned in a ditch or denied legal protection and abandoned in the womb, God will not bless a nation that destroys her children in the womb. And he will not bless a church that stands by silently as those children are being destroyed. Let me move to my fourth fallacy or falsehood here. And that is that abortion is health care. That women need abortion to save their lives. We've heard a lot about that in the last year or so, haven't we? That women need abortion to save their lives, that abortion is health care. Well, first of all, abortion is murder, not health care. This has been repeated, though, so often, so many times now, that even many professing Christians have come to believe it. Um, while there are indeed many life-threatening pregnancy-related conditions that women die from, Things like chorioamnionitis, severe placental abruption, ectopic pregnancy, and many others. There is never a time where a doctor's only option is to intentionally kill or abort the baby to save the mother's life. That is just not true. I know you've heard it. Many of you have heard that for so long. Maybe you've come to believe it yourself. It's not true. Um, doctors may need to deliver a baby early and they may need to deliver that baby so early to save the mother's life that the baby couldn't possibly survive. But that's not an abortion. Abortion is the intentional killing of the baby. In this case, the intention is to save the mother's life, knowing that the baby's life cannot be saved. 
So I want to I want to show you um, a short video. It's a four minute long video. Nothing graphic here, moms and dads. This is a short video where Dr. Anthony Levitino, one of the nation's most respected high risk pregnancy doctors, okay, is being interviewed by Lila Rose. Now the interview is much longer. I think it's 45 minutes long in, in its entirety. And you can watch the whole thing on YouTube if you if you'd like. But this is just a four minute clip I want to show you where Dr. Anthony Levitino. And by the way, you should know that he used to perform abortions in his practice. But through a, a, a terrible tragedy, the loss of his seven-year-old daughter who died in his arms in the, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital after being hit by a car across in, in, in the street that they live on. Through that and a series of other things, Dr. Anthony Levitino became pro-life. It's a powerful story. Focus on the Family shares the story. If you want to watch, there's a two-part video uh, on YouTube where he and his wife are giving the testimony. It's really worth watching. But in this clip, what you're going to see is Dr. Anthony Levitino making the argument that I'm making, that you never need abortion to save a mother's life. Now, if you watch closely, the context here is a little more narrow. He's arguing that you never need abortion in the third trimester to save a mother's life. If you watch the video, though, in the, its entirety, his argument is that you never need abortion at any point to save a mother's life. Okay, just to be clear. So don't be thrown by the narrow context of the third trimester in this video. So Lila Rose of Live Action does a great job with the interview here. Let's go ahead and watch that at this time. So I'll let you be the judge of that, but I think that's a pretty compelling testimony. And he's not alone. You can find several of these testimonials on YouTube of other um, uh, OBGYNs or other, uh, other doctors making the same argument that you never need abortion to int- the intentional killing of a baby to save a mother's life. So to be clear, uh, even in states now where um, now that Roe has fallen, states that are now pro-life states where abortion is illegal, even in those states, women can get life-saving treatments or surgeries, um, and they will not be prosecuted, and the doctors who perform them will not be prosecuted, uh, assuming that those life-saving measures um, are not the intentional abortion of an unborn baby, okay? So a lot of misinformation about this, a lot of fear-mongering going on, but it's just not true that abortion, abortion is indeed not health care. Let me move to the fifth one here, and that is that we are often accused as pro-lifers that you pro-lifers, you Christians aren't really pro life, you're only pro-birth. Anybody heard that? That you have what they call a fetus fetish. You're all obsessed with saving the baby in the womb, but once the baby comes out of the womb, you all disappear. You want to take away all welfare programs, you don't care about those babies, you don't care about their mothers. Okay, well, this is an absurd accusation. I mean, even if it were true, it wouldn't justify abortion. In other words, It doesn't follow that one's disregard for babies after they're born would somehow justify somebody else killing them before they're born. It just doesn't follow from a logic standpoint. But this is nothing but a disingenuous effort to distract us and to weaken our effectiveness. Um, No other movement is held to the same standard. Okay. Uh, imagine saying to, well, let me, let me back up here for a minute. So one of the objections is, along these lines, is that you're not really pro-life unless you oppose war, capital punishment, gun rights, and unless you support open borders, universal health care, and adopt every un- unwanted child. You've all heard this kind of thing, right? Now this is again an attempt on our opponent's part to redefine for us what they think it ought to mean to be pro-life. Francis Beckwith, pro-lifer, calls this the fallacy of pro-life exceptionalism, and that being that pro-lifers must address every moral evil along with the evil of abortion to be morally authentic, but those who address any other moral evil don't have to address abortion to be morally authentic. So imagine saying to the American Cancer Society, you're not really against cancer unless you also stand against homelessness and fight abortion. 
Nobody would ever say that to them. It's just the pro-life community that is treated this way. Frederick the, the Great said it this way, he who fights everywhere fights nowhere. This is an attempt to, to dilute us, to weaken our, our um, effectiveness. We are focused in, in the pro-life community, we are laser focused in the pro-life community in stopping abortion because the other, in, in, in saving babies, because the other side is laser focused on killing them. So we don't make any apology for that. Now that said, the accusation is demonstrably false. This accusation that we don't care about babies or mothers after these babies are born. That's just demonstrably false. Follow the money with me very quickly. Right now in the United States, there are approximately 700 abortion clinics. Many of those are owned and operated by men for financial profit off of young women who are in a crisis and off the blood of their children. And these guys are driving Lamborghinis and living in gated communities because abortion is big money. Now follow the money with me. 700 abortion clinics, many owned and operated by men who are getting rich off of women. Would it surprise you to know that right now there are nearly 3,000 pregnancy care centers in the United States. The vast majority are run by women, for women, at no cost to women. And these ladies, I get to speak at a lot of their banquets and I get to meet them. They're not driving Lamborghinis. Okay? It doesn't take long to find out who the real friend of babies, both born and unborn, and their mothers and fathers is. It's the pro-life community. Are we perfect? No, far from it. But nobody's doing it better than us. Nobody's doing it better than the Christian community. Um, And again, it's not just about us declaring abortion a great evil. It is about us putting our money where our mouth is and our time where our, you know, in our time where our mouth is as well. And that's exactly what we're seeing throughout the United States. Could we do a better job? Yeah, if we could get more of the church to wake up with us. Right now, I think in Indianapolis, I just checked this last night online, I think you have five pregnancy centers in or near Indianapolis. And more of these are popping up all the time throughout the United States, thankfully. So this is, this is again, just demonstrably false. It's ridiculous. Uh, and uh, by the way, you want an ultrasound, uh, an ultrasound here at one of your local pregnancy care centers? They're free. You want one at Planned Parenthood? They started about $200. Why is that? Are they that broke? They're getting millions of our tax dollars and they're making millions of dollars off of abortion. But they need to charge young moms 200 bucks for an ultrasound? And they're the friend of women? Where are their maternity homes? Because we've got about 300 of them in the United States. We could, we could go on, but you get the point. Let me move to the, uh, the fifth one. And that is that, um, or I'm sorry, the sixth one, the last one here. And that is that speaking uh, against abortion from the pulpit will only inflict greater pain on those who have had abortions or have been responsible for them. I want to just say up front that I'm sympathetic to this concern. I don't know of any pastor who wants to inflict greater pain on those who've had an abortion or have been responsible for one. Uh, when I was actively pastoring, this was a great concern of mine as well. But nothing inflicts greater injury on those who are post-abortive like pulpit silence. Because when the church goes silent, the pastor is communicating one of two messages to those who've been impacted by previous abortion decisions, and both of these messages are damaging and regretful. Either A, abortion's not so bad, or B, the gospel's not so good, or both. I mean, think about it. You know, if, if you've been sitting in a church for 20 years and your pastor never talks about abortion, but he speaks out against lust, lying, gossip, and slander, you're left to assume, well, this must not be a big deal. Or maybe you're not post-abortive. Maybe you're scheduled for an abortion next week. You're thinking, must not be a big deal. My pastor doesn't talk about it. Or the opposite is the, tr- is the case. That you're left to assume the second. That abortion is so bad, my pastor can't even mention it from the pulpit. 
I must have committed the unpardonable sin. There must be no grace left for me. These are horrible, horrible messages to give to those who have been impacted by abortion decisions. And I think every pastor, every church ought to be asking the question, is our gospel really for everyone? Or is it only for those who are conveniently loved and protected? Or fashionably loved and protected? Abortion is evil because it kills innocent children and leaves women, men, in guilt and shame. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is beautiful because it compels us to defend innocent children and provides hope and forgiveness for guilty adults. We do not have to choose between speaking up boldly, thundering from our pulpits against the evil of abortion, and at the same time holding out the gospel and saying, I've got good news for you this morning. And I want to spend just two minutes talking to those of you who have been impacted by an abortion decision, and I'm sure there are several of you here this morning. I've got good news for you. The sin of abortion is no match for the grace of God. You do not need one more drop of grace than any other person in this sanctuary this morning. You've heard it said that the ground is even at the foot of the cross, and I think it's true. I think it's true. As Scott Klusendorf says, you don't need an excuse for your sin. You need what every person in this room needs, an exchange. His righteousness for your sinfulness. And I'm just going to share a couple of verses with you here. First John 1 John 1.9, maybe you're familiar with this verse already. If we confess our sins... Whatever that sin is, in this case we're talking about abortion, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel. And then in John 8.36, we read these words, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you believe that? I do. I do. Now, if all Jesus did was forgive us of our sins, he would be worthy of our praise for all of eternity. But he does more than that. He promises to put us back together emotionally, to restore us to kingdom usefulness. You say, well, how, where'd you come up with that, Mike? In Philippians chapter 1. It says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the good news. Why are so many churches hiding it from those who would benefit so richly from it? Do we believe the gospel we claim to believe or not? If we do, then we won't shrink back from sharing it and bringing the gospel to bear against this evil that we call abortion. If you've been impacted by an abortion decision, I want to plead with you this morning to tell somebody to confess it to a brother or a sister in Christ, to go to one of the pastors or maybe one of their wives, to go to the local pregnancy care center, I promise you, you are going to be met with warmth and grace and confidentiality. And they will walk you through. I know your pastoral staff will do this and their wives would do this for you. They will walk you through the scriptures. They will pray with you. They will weep with you. You will not be ostracized. Satan would love to keep you in shame, suffering alone. That's what he loves to do is isolate us. Don't let him do that. Sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. And then in conclusion, I will say this. For all of us, when we see the preborn and their parents 
the way that Christ does, then speaking up for them and defending them is no longer viewed as a burden, but it's one of the greatest privileges of our lives to give voice to the voiceless. Proverbs 31, verse 8. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. It has been a joy to be with you this morning. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for Harbor Shores Church, for shepherds, good shepherds, as Rob read for us from your Gospel of John, good shepherds who protect the flock, who care for the sheep. Lord, I'm thankful for a church that is a lighthouse in this community, and I pray that you would continue to make their light shine brightly, that you would raise up men and women, young people from this church, who would be unapologetic and fearless in their bold defense of your little ones. And Father, that the result of that would be that moms and dads would not be making decisions that they might regret for a lifetime, and that those who have made those decisions would find freedom in Christ and complete forgiveness and healing. Father, we grieve over the condition of our land. And we know that our problems are far wider and deeper than abortion, but we also know that you will not bless a nation that destroys her children in the womb. God, have mercy on us. Awaken your church. Do great things through us, we pray. And we will give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord over all, that we pray these things today. Amen. Amen.